0: One of the things that's been particularly salient is the use of the internet to really engage in information warfare, by which I mean weaponizing information in a way to mislead, to undermine unity of effort, to antagonize or to spur or inspire violence. You are listening to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. In today's episode, our host, Rain Founder David Lawrence, speaks with the former director of U.S. Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff about cybersecurity, leadership, and how the crisis over Ukraine may accelerate disinformation, destabilization, and digital warfare.
1: Mike, it really is a great pleasure and honor, um, and thank you for your participation in this podcast, which is to help inform people about cybersecurity. I refer to it as cyber survival. Before we start, I feel compelled to explain to the audience that you've had a distinguished career in the public sector in a variety of positions. And even though you've been uh, technically in the private sector uh, for a number of years, you continue very much to be a public servant, an honest broker of information and somebody who cares deeply about safety, security, national security, and the national economy, and a lot of, I know a lot of the work that you do. And a lot of the knowledge that you share, even in the private sector, is towards that end. So let me uh, perhaps begin. This had to go back, I would say, close to 15 years, Mike. Uh, You and General Hayden, uh, when I was at Goldman Sachs, were kind enough to come up and uh, brief uh, a variety of people at Goldman Uh, about a topic. I don't even think the word cybersecurity existed. I don't think cyber attacks existed or cyber threats, et cetera. But um, having recently left the government, um, you had a very, very strong conviction about what was likely to come, uh, et cetera. And so what I'd like to try to do here, Mike, is to perhaps um, give people a little bit of a history of uh, how we got to where we are, and definitely want to discuss not only what the future holds, but what institutions can do both individually and and on a collaborative basis. So let me just open the floor up uh, to a little bit of a history lesson.
0: I'm happy to do that, David, and thank you for hosting me uh, on uh, what is a very important topic and increasingly important, uh, particularly given the state of the world. So let me just step back and give you a little kind of capsule history. If we go back several decades to when the Internet was first developed, as many people know, it was a Defense Department funded initiative that was originally designed to come up with a way in which academics and government personnel could communicate with each other if the ordinary pathways of communication became compromised or, or disrupted in some way. And the critical insight was the ability to take data and move it via packets in a lot of different uh, routes and then assemble them at the endpoint in an intelligible communication. And this was originally seen as a government and academic uh, resource. And therefore, the issue of trust was not really addressed because everybody involved was trusted. But then, sometime after the Internet took off, um, they began to allow it to be used for commercial purposes. <clears throat> and that is, of course, where we get the Internet of today. We also had the development of the World Wide Web, which allows us to migrate to sites, and so what became what, what began as a an academic and, and government-focused effort became a generally worldwide effort. And of course, the issue of trust then became very important. So as we look at the way this has developed, not surprisingly, particularly when commercial transactions took place over the internet, uh, we began to see criminals focus on the internet as a target for identity theft and theft of money. And, you know, the reason is very simple. It's like Willie Sutton said about robbing banks. That's where the money is. And as soon as the criminals discovered the money was on the Internet, they began to focus on that. And that's why the absence of a mechanism for trust by design or security by design became a challenge and something that we had to then work to play catch up with. What has happened in the years since is that the criminal activity on the Internet has dramatically increased in scale. For example, some years ago, the North Koreans attempted to steal a billion dollars from the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, the account held for the Bank of Bangladesh. Um, And they actually managed to steal $81 before a clerk discovered that the instructions that were being relayed uh, falsely involved included spelling errors that suggested they were not genuine. But that still gives you an idea of the amounts of money involved. We've also had identity theft at scale, and then the use of uh, the ability to get data as a way of stealing intellectual property, which is still a very big issue with respect to the Chinese. And then as we've moved beyond even that, i um, there have been issues about ransomware to extort money at large scale, and even more troubling, nation states beginning to use the Internet as an area of conflict. So we've seen, for example, the Iranians attack American banks, uh, uh, you know, about 10 years ago uh, with denial of service attacks. We saw the Russians attack Ukraine with the NotPetya ransomware, which uh, basically compromised uh, the access to data for a whole number of commercial enterprises doing business in Ukraine, including Maersk, the shipping company, and Merck, the American pharmaceutical company. And we've also seen attacks on critical infrastructure. Uh, Again, in Ukraine, we've seen attacks on the power grid, We've seen reconnaissance on our own power grid here. And as we get into more and more geopolitical tension, particularly with Russia and China, increasingly there's a concern that we have to treat cyber as a domain of potential conflict and build a set of defenses and a set of uh, deterrence to prevent uh, seeing actual real damage to people being uh, executed over the Internet.
1: It's a great um, condensed history, and one of the things that um, you know we have spoken about and which try to impress upon um, everyone within our network and beyond, and you've given sort of a great overview of it, Mike, is why cyber really is not a technology issue. Uh, technology is a portal, but the description of what we're dealing with, and I, I want to delve a little more deeply into it in a moment, but basically, the crimes I like to say go back to the you know biblical days, uh, whether it's fraud, theft, blackmail, extortion you know around the threat and release of emails and things like that to uh, disinformation and propaganda to Espionage and sabotage. And ultimately, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I recently uh, reread a paper that my son did in high school about uh, the evolution of cartoons as propaganda. And World War I um, ushered in all sorts of leaflets that were dropped from airplanes as a means of mass distribution. And some of which, you know, depicted all sorts of disinformation, which, you know, was intended to sow divisiveness and, you know, encourage all sorts of activity. But it just um, I'd love to get your views, because what what you are saying or what I'm hearing you say is that this is a this is a criminal problem. It is a geopolitical issue. Uh, It is a nation state you know, conflict issue, uh, it is an organized crime issue, um, wrapped or empowered by, facilitated by, enabled by our digital platforms. Is that too much of an understatement? Or
0: No, I think that, you know, you've covered a wide variety of things. I mean, almost any area where human beings can exploit other humans, or create a contest, or a competition, or even a conflict, uh, doing it in cyberspace is as uh, appealing and as, as, has as much potential as doing it in real life. And in fact, because of the global reach of cyberspace, it's actually easier for people to carry out criminal acts or acts of conflict <clears throat> over a distance. And as I think you mentioned earlier, very briefly, an important part of that is human beings because we're not yet at the point that the machines themselves decide to become malevolent. I mean, that's more, you know, the the kind of the Terminator movie franchise, Uh, although we may get there with artificial intelligence, which is a whole separate issue. But what happens is we have human failings or human malevolence. So, for example, the failure to design security into software coding and hardware development is something that's exploited by adversaries. Likewise, many of the uh, attacks that we've seen be successful rely on tricking or fooling somebody <clears throat> who grants access to criminals or nation state actors by clicking on something that's a, a you know, false watering hole for a site or that has embedded within it some malware And again, that's exploiting a human failing as opposed to uh, some purely technical issue. And then as you pointed out, one of the things that's been particularly salient in the last few years is the use of the internet to really engage in information warfare, by which I mean weaponizing information in a way to mislead, to undermine unity of effort, to antagonize or to to spur or inspire violence. And I think this is one of the emerging areas as a particular concern to liberal democracies because they see both internal enemies to democracy and external adversaries working sometimes together in order to undermine confidence and trust in government and in institutions as a way of weakening our societies.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that last point about uh, sowing the seeds of distrust in institutions. And I know um, you were very much at the vanguard around election security, and particularly in a country where uh, the margins of victory were very slim. You could almost identify, um, you know, half a dozen districts in this country that, you know swung a national election, and maybe you could um, share with us some of the thinking um, behind why um, disinformation and what I'll refer to as information security is increasingly important uh, to protecting our democracy.
0: David, it's a very important issue. Um, So let me begin by saying, contrary to um, what some people believe, The real risk here isn't of an adversary hacking into our voting system and changing votes. For one thing, we have widely distributed uh, voting machines all over the country. And uh, they're really not connected to the Internet, except very, very briefly when votes are transmitted. So it would be very hard at scale to actually tamper with votes themselves. Now, you could make voting more difficult by, for example, using ransomware to shut down registration systems. So when people went to register to vote, uh, you know, they would wind up having delays. Um, The workaround for that is the workaround for any uh, kind of resilience, which is you need to have a backup system. And frankly, dare I say, paper records are sometimes a useful backup system because nobody's ever figured out how to hack paper. So in terms of the actual mechanics of voting, I think that's relatively secure. And I know that the government has worked with the states to invest further efforts to raise their level of security, for example, for registration systems. Where I think we have a bigger risk is disinformation either that misleads people about how and where to vote, so they miss the opportunity to vote, or that misleads people about what happened in an election and gets them to believe something that is the opposite of the truth. And we've seen that, unfortunately, quite a bit in the last year. And, you know, this goes to the more general issue of erosion of trust in in facts. You know, Daniel Moynihan famously said, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts, I'm not sure that he'd get universal agreement on that proposition anymore. Okay. And one thing the Internet has done is it's allowed people to build an alternative universe where they curate the news that they receive so it only validates their own point of view rather than some objective professional uh, categorization of what's true or not true and that creates social fragmentation. It may inspire people to engage in disruptive activity up to and including what we saw on January 6th. And it certainly undermines confidence and trust in our democratic systems. And one of the things that autocrats are increasingly doing is using their control of the internet to say, oh, look, our system is better because our internet is not disruptive. In democracies, the internets are all very disruptive. So, I do think we need to, again, increasingly pay attention to the content of what is broadcast so that we don't uh, allow our tools that are supposed to be promoting democracy to become actually methods of undermining democracy.
1: So, by the way, uh, one of my favorite quotes, I try to use it a lot, uh, is uh, Senator Moynihan's about uh, uh, the entitlement of an opinion, but not uh, you're not entitled to your own set of facts. So let me unpack that a little bit, Mike, because you pointed to a, a couple of things here. And the point you make about uh, the integrity of our voting machines and decentralization and, you know, sort of the ability to authenticate, I'm not sure the American public has been educated enough about um, these machines. Uh, The old days, at least here in New York, uh, you went into a booth, uh, there were levers, you clicked the Xs, you hit the crank. And then secondly, uh, as you speak about uh, people getting the information lends itself to confirmatory bias, only that information which tells you what you either suspected, believed, and becomes reinforcing... The fact of the matter is that's not necessarily a citizen choice. We have these platforms that are specifically guiding content to people based upon their preferences and what they read before. And of course, they're selling ads against it. And so my question here, because as we think about cybersecurity and the threats to democracy, uh, we may not yet be able to control the actions of our adversaries, but It seems to me that there's a fair amount that we can be doing on our own to try to maintain, uh, if not restore, trust in institutions and curb disinformation. And I'd like to get your thoughts on that.
0: Well, two things. First of all, let me first, on the issue of voting machines, uh, it differs a little bit in every jurisdiction. But at least when I vote, we typically fill out now a piece of paper and then it gets scanned in. But the paper is saved. So there is a backup if there was ever a doubt about whether things were being accurately recorded, you could go back and do the paper. And I know there's a technology that now involved is now involved that, that would allow, for example, voters to log on to a site where they voted and using encryption technology to check that their vote was recorded and transmitted, but only they would be able to check because it would be encrypted, the data would be encrypted and only they would have the key. So there may be technological solutions that allow for verification and confidence building. On the larger question you raised about disinformation and what what our platforms are doing, I think there are two particular challenges that need to be looked at that have been instrumental in weaponizing disinformation over the Internet. One is the ability to take data and use it to micro-target people. You know, it's it's one thing to take out an ad on television, like on the Super Bowl, a political ad, and, you know, some people will find it persuasive, others will laugh at it or turn it off. But if you could target your information to people based upon a very precise understanding of what their interests are, then that gives you much more bang for the buck. And what the collection and, and analysis of data has allowed platforms to do is to make that kind of very microscopically tailored messaging available. Originally just to commercial enterprises to sell you stuff, but now it's also available or used by political candidates or political actors. So the the ability to control your own data and restrict its availability is an important part in limiting the ability of people to weaponize information by exploiting their knowledge of your intimate set of interests. A related concept, is, as you, as you kind of alluded to, are the algorithms that are typically used by the platforms to drive people uh, to, to spend more time dwelling on the site. Because the way the economics of platforms work is basically the, your, the more people spend time on your platform and the more they look at, the more your advertising revenue goes up because the rates increase, because that's what advertisers are paying for. The problem is those algorithms are also useful in radicalizing or promoting extreme points of view because they're tuned in such a way as to engage people's emotional reactions and lure them further down the rabbit hole once they've expressed an interest in a particular site. So, for example, in the counterterrorism area, we saw someone might log on to site. you know, tell me about this ideology or tell me about, you know, Islam or something, just with perfectly innocent intent. And then they would start to get fed, you might be interested in this. And what was, was being touted was a more extreme version of what the person had looked at. The idea being that having expressed an interest, they would get sucked into spending more and more time pursuing extreme forms of what they had been uh, focusing on. So, I do think there is a sense increasingly that limiting the ability to exploit data without express permission of the data provider and the ability to regulate the use of algorithms when it comes to political issues or similar types of issues, may be part of what we're going to see in regulation, either self-regulation by the platforms or government regulation going forward. And the Europeans are already doing a fair bit of this.
1: We've brought the Trojan horse inside our gates, not necessarily appreciating everything that was inside the horse. We, We admired the horse. We saw the benefits in the horse but we have yet to unpack and understand the threats that we're within. Maybe what's making matters worse is it's not just a matter of recognizing the issues. I guess, you know, increasingly we do. But the fact is, Mike, there's a a business model built around the algorithms and micro-targeting for advertising and keeping people's attention there's a pro and for-profit model that we have around our platforms of connectivity without necessarily, I guess the uh, economists would talk about the externalities of the costs, without incorporating you know, what the true costs are uh, around these businesses and around what we're doing.
0: I, I, think, that, I think that's very true. And you know, there's, there's a saying that data is the new gold because it has been the foundation of an enormous amount of wealth creation. And it's not a, a, an accident that the most highly capitalized and valuable companies uh, in the world now are basically built upon exploiting data and using it for marketing purposes. And by way of dramatically illustrating that, in the last, I think, week, Meta, which I guess is the new name for Facebook, lost a huge amount of market value because Apple – created some new privacy protections in the phones, which would make it harder for uh, Facebook to automatically collect and use the data. So that's a kind of a perfect illustration of the extent to which our information economy has been built around exploitation of data and use of algorithms in order to create marketing tools. And I think we need to you know, really ask ourselves whether that's a good system.
1: And you've suggested that one of the possible solutions is to give people better control around um, their data and, I guess, their search histories. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Meta. If you like to go back to Marshall McLuhan's expression that the medium is the message, you know, what I'm also seeing here now is there's increased focus. Apple, you know, launched their privacy aspects and, you know, they're very attuned to the market and what people want. Your text messages are, you know, basically read and open sourced. And uh, a s- search company, uh, DuckDuckGo, was about um, emphasizing that your search history should be your private affair. And so you're suggesting that one of the ways we can begin to maybe, you know, um, gain back some of the safety and security in how we communicate, how we associate, how we search is uh, to give people Control around their data. What else is needed to enhance the security and I'll call it maintain institutional trust?
0: So, so I think there are really two dimensions. Um, one is when we actually you know, voluntarily provide information, like to a platform, and then it's made use of it in a way that winds up actually you know becoming uh, you know perhaps harmful. And I think there the key is a set of rules about making sure that you have control over the ways in which your data is combined or transmitted to third parties or how it's used um, as a matter of law. So you can control, not, it's not going to be perfect, but to some degree the ability of people to exploit your data. And actually it's what I wrote about in my book, Exploding Data. Was This is a big issue. The second question is just dealing with hacking. People, as you say, breaking into your data Or breaking into your network and stealing things. And um, this is a case of of risk management, but not risk elimination, by which I mean, there's going to be no way you can ever absolutely protect yourself against ever getting hacked. It's a little bit, to be honest, dare I use this analogy, like getting a virus. Uh, You can't necessarily perfectly prevent you from, you know, coming into contact with a virus, or even getting infected. But what a well-tuned immune system does is if you are infected, it kills the virus relatively quickly before any damage is done. And so the model when we're dealing with a computer virus as opposed to a flu virus has got to be defense in depth. Yes, you want to try to secure the endpoints and prevent infection in the first place, but the reality is it's almost impossible to prevent all hacking from occurring. The difference between a trivial event and a very serious event is how long the adversary gets to dwell and range around a new network. And there, there are a series of things you can do with identity, access controls, real-time monitoring, encryption, that can mitigate the risk that someone who gains unauthorized access can really exploit your network. And those... That set of tools needs to be tailored based upon what your critical assets are by the degree to which you have to be open to the public in terms of of business, but also whether there are certain areas of your uh, activities that can be more walled off or even disconnected from the internet so as to, again, minimize the risk. And It's about managing the risk in a way that doesn't undermine your business that becomes the critical strategy.
1: I will give you a unsolicited plug because I know the Chertoff Group has worked extraordinarily effectively with some of the leading institutions and in helping them to assess, you know, their vulnerabilities and their inherent risks. Doing the things that can, as you say, mitigate. And then, of course, because these situations are fluid, uh, the ability to monitor not only what's going on inside an institution and from an external standpoint, but the threat landscape. But you've been no less public, Mike, in talking about the need for our policy leaders um, around laws, regulations, and to drive collaboration, the needed collaboration. So a company uh, might do everything that you know it can and, and have its own environment under control. But if, if something broader happens to the nation's infrastructure or to locally within a city, these are the things that that can have as much, if not more, of an impact. And so I'd love to, in closing, get your thoughts about what is needed from the policy arena, but also in terms of to drive trust and collaboration between the private and public sectors, because certainly it is needed here.
0: Well, that's absolutely critical, David. And the Biden administration has been, I think, very focused, particularly through my former agency, you know, Homeland Security, but also with other parts of the government on building closer relationships with the private sector, particularly the financial community, through the FSISAC and a number of different groups that exchange information and best practices. And also the government is beginning to up the game a little bit in terms of regulatory requirements and requiring, you know, prompt real-time reporting of intrusions with protection, so it's not used against people who actually disclose what they're supposed to do. Um, And then ultimately, there'll be some role where the government may have to be more active uh, in defending. Um, And that's not going to be the government sitting on everybody's network, like the goalie in a hockey game, uh, because we don't want to have the government living on everybody's network. But it may mean the use of government offensive capabilities to retaliate, particularly when a nation state or a major criminal organization is launching a series of attacks. And there have been some press discussions about, for example, the ability to take out a server that a criminal group might have used to launch an attack and disable it. And we may see more of that. I think we need to, because there needs to be an element of deterrence, particularly with nation states, And, uh, you know, sometimes we've talked about sanctions. We saw that, you know, Russian intelligence has been using either its own agents or criminal groups to go out and carry out attacks that can be used to gather intelligence or to even damage something. And I think we're beginning to push back on the Russians, including with sanctions, perhaps even uh, response in, in cyberspace. So I think increasingly the ability to deter and respond and engage in what some call active defense will be part of what the government uniquely has to bring to the table.
1: And Mike, just to bring this back, because I always find it helpful, at least for me and various people we speak with and work with, to underscore the ability to understand what is happening here, I'll call it in in a non-technological way. And so what I hear you speaking to is some of the traditional and tested methods of law enforcement the ability to specifically deter the ability to generally deter the ability to detect and to punish are tools which we haven't quite yet fully figured out in terms of what is what is the strategy and the mechanism but uh in analog terms if you were dealing with theft and fraud and espionage etc those are the traditional tools that have been effective in an analog world. And we now have to figure out what are the right levers in a digital context.
0: That's right, David. I think the hard, the challenging thing here is we're dealing because of the Internet's rapidity and in global nature. We're dealing with a much more international challenge than has been traditionally the case when you're dealing with ordinary crime or, or human uh, espionage because things can happen literally in a nanosecond, and it can be launched from anywhere in the world. So the capability to operate in a global environment and bring our allies on board is very important. Um, and then we need to come up with ways to deal with our adversaries so that we, well, not you know, dividing the Internet into two parts, we have some ability to protect our free Internet from some of the malevolent activities and actors in other parts of the world.
1: I'm going to end where I began, Mike, which is to thank you for your intellectually honest leadership, knowledge sharing in this very important space. Uh, you've often been ahead of the curve, and sometimes I don't want to say it's a lonely job, but I know you've been speaking about things which other people have not focused on or felt was a priority. i also note in the last presidential election, uh, I didn't really hear cybersecurity come up very much in the debate's. But as you point out, uh, the Biden administration is now taking uh, a number of important steps. And we're watching, as you reference, the Ukraine would appear some of the initial hostilities were around the digital disruption of government and institutions in the Ukraine. So uh, a very, very important topic. With many thanks for all that you've done and your continuing service. And thanks for the time today, Mike.
0: My pleasure, David, and to be continued, a very important conversation, particularly now as we watch what's going on in Ukraine and Asia and other parts of the world. David Lawrence spoke with Michael Chertoff, who is chairman of the Chertoff Group, a cybersecurity consultancy, and the former head of U.S. Homeland Security. Stay ahead of cyber risks that could impact your operations. Become a Rain member today. Visit RAINNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Emily Donoghue. Thanks for listening.